0: Well, I've wanted to be queen every day since I've been born, and uh, this tiara is mine. It was given to me when I was born. I was born into a, a royal family, and so from the day that I was born, I knew that someday I wanted to be queen. I didn't have a song like Simba, but I—I uh, I wanted to be queen. And being a queen is a great gig because people wait on you hand and foot. You never have to worry about anything. You never need anything. You never look at the price of anything. It's a great, great life. And I'm blessed to rule over a great kingdom. We live in a beautiful land, beautiful people. I have amazing servants. I mean, who wouldn't want to be me? And yet sometime years ago, I started getting visitors, people coming to see me from foreign lands and they told me these amazing tales about this king who sounded too good to be true supposedly he was the the wealthiest king on earth supposedly he was the wisest king on earth and he built these glorious temples and palaces and he wrote poetry and songs you know they should just give him his own tv show you know and and i just heard all these stories and eventually it's not that i don't love my people it's not that i don't love my land but the curiosity was too much i had to go see him and i went there and i saw him and after he showed me everything he'd built, after he showed me all of his wealth, after he showed me all of his land, after he gave me advice about my biggest problems, well, I knew that he was even better than I had been told. Now, in case you're wondering, it's not my story. <sighs> It's also not my tiara, for, for those of you who are wondering. I had to borrow that for today. But that is the story of a queen known as the Queen of Sheba. And she left her land in modern-day Ethiopia, and she went to visit King Solomon in his land. And she explored all the stories that she had been told, and in 1 Kings chapter 10, she remarks on what she saw. She says says that when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon and the house or palace that he had built, the food on his table and the seating of his servants, his court officials, and the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers, his stairway by which he went up to the house, the temple of the Lord, she was breathless and awed by the wonder of it all. Then she told the king, The report which I heard in my own land about your own words and wisdom is true. I did not believe the report until I came and saw it with my own eyes. Behold, the half of it was not told to me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed, fortunate, and happy are your men. How blessed are these, your servants, who stand continually before you hearing your wisdom. If I could sum up the Queen of Sheba's response to Solomon in an emoji, it would be this one right here. <laughs> mind blown and yet she's so blown away by what she, she does that she does something that, that would maybe be odd to us I mean he's the wealthiest man on earth what is it that he does not need more of but, 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 but what does a rich person give a rich person right more money and so in verse 10 it says then she gave the king 120 talents of gold which is not a small amount and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones, never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. It's one of the times we see the kind of context of King Solomon's life and the influence of him. But there's a phrase I want to draw your attention to that I just read. And it's this phrase, the half of it wasn't told to me. You've had moments like I have, where there's something you thought you understood... And you go, man, I didn't know the half of it. Or you thought you were prepared for something. And you got into it and you realized, oh, I didn't know the half of it. Or or maybe you thought you totally understood something. And then you realized that you were just getting started. And and to Solomon, she comes after hearing all these things and she says, the half of it wasn't told to me. And what's interesting is today we're going to learn that there's even more that she didn't know than she thinks she did. Today, there's a central idea, and kids, if you want to write this down, there's a place on your parents' handout they can show you that you can copy it down on. The main idea of today's message is this, that contentment doesn't come from stuff. Contentment is a gift from God. Contentment doesn't come from stuff contentment is a gift from God and that's the lesson that we learn in today's passage in the book of Ecclesiastes we've been in Ecclesiastes all throughout the month of June and we'll be it all throughout July if you have a Bible and kids if you brought your Bible typically if you open your Bible to the middle you hit Psalms and then you go to the back and you hit Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes And today we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6, and while you're turning there, i want to welcome all the kids to the room and and affirm what Josh said. This is a day that's a little bit harder to preach to, and that's okay. Um, This is a no-judgment, no-stink-eye, no-bad-look Sunday. So if that's your natural look or that's your normal look, then just contain that. Parents are doing their best job. I have all three of my kids in church for the first time. God bless my wife. Um, And so... uh, so yeah that we're having a great day please if you know somebody who volunteers in kids ministry give them a pat on the back today for what they do and parents i just want to encourage you i can't remind myself of this enough that more is caught than taught more is caught than taught you remember that from your parents you got more from what they did than what they said because you trust what they did not what they said and, uh, and that's awesome. And then also I want to give you a heads up that this week I've been in Phoenix recording uh, sermon movies for you guys for At The Movies. And so we'll be getting At The Movies in about seven weeks on August 11th. The dates are in your bulletin. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But now that you're here in Ecclesiastes, I want to share with you today the other half that Solomon didn't tell the Queen of Sheba. And we're going to begin in verse one of Ecclesiastes five. And he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil he says be not rash with your mouth nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God for God is in heaven and you are on earth therefore let your words be few he says for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words when you vow a vow to God do not delay paying it For he has no pleasure in fools, but pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and that you should not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. The first thing that I don't think Solomon told the queen of Sheba is that God takes us more seriously than we take him. God takes you and me more seriously than we take him. The the passage begins with this kind of ominous, interesting phrase. Solomon says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And he elaborates on this this message of intentionality that we ought to prepare for resistance when we get ready to engage with god parents you know this the hardest day to get your kids ready for life is not monday it's sunday you know that the hardest battles that are fought in your family are in the car on the way to church on sunday you know that on saturday you set the intention we're going to go to church and then just life comes at you out of nowhere You go, hey, we're going to get involved in a community group. And that night just is a terrible, terrible night. You decide that you are going to start eating healthy. And what happens? Your friend invites you out for pizza. You know, everything in our life that's important, immediately we move towards it and immediately there's resistance. And so Solomon says, hey, guard your steps. Hey, be prepared that there is going to be resistance to you being intentional and serious about coming to engage with God. And maybe instead of viewing that resistance as a sign that you shouldn't go, maybe you should begin to look at your life and go, where is there resistance? And that's a sign that's where you should go. Maybe you should stop seeing that resistance and opposition as a red light. And maybe you should start seeing it as a green light. There's a phrase that we hear in this very first section of Ecclesiastes 5 that you've heard in this passage before in this series. And it's a very misunderstood phrase. It's the phrase, fear God. And and many of us hear that phrase and we think, does God want us to be afraid of him? You know, like we're afraid of the dark or afraid of spiders or some of you, what I'm doing right now, public speaking. No, fearing God simply means taking God seriously. To fear God means to take him seriously. And, and, And the truth that Solomon is going to reveal to us here is that we may think we're taking God seriously, but God takes us more seriously than we take him. He takes our words more seriously. He takes our actions more seriously. And, and, and it shows in what he says about his word and his word's role in our lives. When it comes to the scriptures, one of the best summaries about why we should have a great relationship with the Bible comes in Hebrews 4. Where the writer says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, there's a word I highlighted there it's the word laid bare. And in the original language of Hebrews, Greek, the the word that we translate laid bare is also the word that we get the word trachea from. Your trachea is right here. Put your hand right here on your your neck. That's your trachea. If you watched ER, the best episode ever was when George Clooney rescued the little boy from underneath the bridge and stuck the pen in his trachea to help him breathe. I don't make TV like that anymore. Um, But this is your trachea. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is in the same way that when an animal would be killed to feed a family in the ancient day and they would lift the animal's chin and they would slice the throat to kill the animal, what God's word does is it uncovers us and it lays us bare before the eyes of God. That's why so many times you've read this book and stumbled on a verse and said there is no way that was there before. That's why on certain Sundays, you come up to me and you go, Scott, do you have my house bugged? Do you have a video camera in my car? Did you slip a 20 to one of my friends? How did you know that? Because it felt like you were preaching directly to me. That wasn't me. That was the word of God laying you bare, exposing you. So that God might show you that he takes you more seriously than you take him. And he wants to have a relationship with you based upon the truth. And we are so good at deceiving ourselves that he gives us his word to expose us. And so my question for you is this. Do you take God as seriously as he takes you? In your life today, have you been taking God and his love for you and his plans for you and his purposes for you and his relationship with you, have you been taking that as seriously as he does? Because what he's going to do in the verses that follow here is he's going to call us to take our words seriously. He says, if you make a vow, keep it. Because it's better to not make a vow than to just make a vow and not keep it. And that's a great indictment of our culture today because we live in a world that is terrified of commitment. We now call it FOMO, the fear of missing out. Of all ages, and this is not like a millennial thing, you know? This is an us thing. We are afraid of making a commitment because committing to this might prevent us from committing to something else that comes along that's better. And you know the danger of FOMO? is that you're like this guy sitting at home alone, doing nothing because you didn't commit to something. See, our culture disciples us and convinces us that the, the way to get a great life is to never actually commit. You're a free spirit. But the truth is, freedom is actually found in commitment, not from commitment. Did you know that? That f- true freedom comes when there are restraints. If you're an artist, if you're a writer, if you're a painter, if you draw, you know that the greatest creativity comes when you pick restraints, when you commit to a medium or an instrument. If I get invited to speak somewhere, the worst thing somebody can tell me is, Scott, speak on whatever you want. No! No! That's terrible. That's not freedom. That's captivity. I just stare at the blank cursor for two hours, you know? Tell me how long I'm going to speak and to whom I'm going to speak and about what I'm going to speak. See, freedom is found in commitment. And what Solomon is saying to us is he's saying, hey, God is more committed to you than you realize. Are you as committed to him as he is to you? He continues in verse 15. He talks about this person. He's talking about their experience. He says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came. And for those of you from the South, including Clovis Barnett, the word is naked, not naked, naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, great word, and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given them, for this is his lot." Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. The second thing Solomon didn't really tell the Queen of Sheba is that we are to worship God and enjoy stuff. Worship God and enjoy stuff. And like often happens in life, we mix these up. Instead of worshiping God, we worship the stuff he gives us. God gives you money, and instead of worshiping God, you worship the money. God gives you a gift or a talent or an ability, and you worship that instead of the one who gives it. And what Solomon is going to tell us here and what he's describing is that God gives us these things to enjoy and to worship Him in thanksgiving for the joy of enjoying the simple things in life to eat and to drink and to work. But when we worship stuff, it actually robs our stuff of their joy because we're putting a weight on it that it can't hold. You know, I was in the gym a couple weeks ago and someone asked me to spot them because they couldn't hold up the weight they were trying to lift. It was too much for them. This is what happens when you look to a person in your life to fulfill you. You put a weight on them that they can't lift. And it robs you and them of the joy. Because you expect it to do more. And what ends up happening is over time we expect more and more and more to fill us. And what ends up happening is it fills us less and less and less. And there's a song that symbolizes this. And many of you kids know it because it's from a movie song that you sing all the time, No Parents, I Love You Too Much, to mention that Frozen song. (laughs) But it's from a different movie, and it's this song. It's called Never Enough from The Greatest Showman. And I thought maybe at this moment we might have a giant sing-along together. So if you know the words, would you please sing along with me right here? Never, 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 never. Never, never... Are you going to abandon me up here and not sing with me? Come on. Never enough. Never enough. Hugh Jackman's face right there is marveling at my voice, I know. Um. <laughs> but many of us sing this song to ourselves, and if we don't sing it, we live it. We expect more to be enough. But we have more right now than we used to have. And it's still not enough. Over 2,000 years ago, the Roman philosopher Seneca said, money has never made anyone rich. Because how much is enough? A little bit more than I have right now. I heard a, a father tell a story recently about his son... Who asked his dad, Hey, dad, how much is $56,000? Is that a lot of money? And you know what his dad said? It is until you make it. There's some of you who used to be the age of these kids that are sitting around you. And you had a vision in your mind of how much money you wanted to have, how much money you needed. And I would say that most all of you have either made that or are making that. And guess what? The view from here looks quite different. And I want to give you a little reminder to help with this. Kids, if you're in the room, would you turn to your parents right now and ask them if they have one of these in their wallet that you can borrow? And if you're not a kid, you can still pull it out. I want everybody in the room who has a $1 bill to pull it out right now. $1 bills. Only $1. Only singles. $1 bills. If you got a $1 bill, you should pull it out. Carter, come here. Bring your dollar bill with you. Okay. Give Carter a round of applause. Here, come here. Come here. No, no, no. Come up. You're coming up here. Give me your hand. Okay. Come on. Okay. So on the dollar bill. Okay. Who's in the front of the dollar bill? Washington. George Washington's front dog. Good job. Okay, turn it over to the back. Okay, and there's a, an animal right here. What kind of animal is that? A bald, eagle. a bald eagle. Did you know that that animal is in the Bible in a verse that talks about your money? Did you know that? Okay, it's right here. It's Proverbs 23 4 through 5. And it says, Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich, be wise enough to know when to quit. In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. And every parent said, Amen. Amen. Thanks, Carter. Awesome. Thanks for the help. Give him a round of applause. See, Solomon wrote this line because he knew. Oh, you going to give that to me? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. Solomon knew that as fast as it goes in, it flies away. And what's interesting is that so many of us know this, we just don't talk about it. But, but we're aware of it all the time. I was reminded this week of, of a famous rap song by Biggie that was Mo Money, Mo Problems. And this week I've been educating people who have no idea who Biggie is. But you know his song right here. Oh right the more money we come across the more money we need and and you might say Scott I'm not vulnerable to this I'm a really holy person (laughs) right and see what happens is that Solomon in Ecclesiastes is not anti-money this is where the church the church has got it wrong In trying to preach the truth of Paul's words to Timothy, that the love of money is the root of all evil, we forgot the root. And we forgot the word love. It's not that having money is bad. What what, what Solomon says here is it's good to have money and to enjoy your work and to enjoy your toil and to enjoy your life. But when that thing takes the place of God, you lose the ability to enjoy it. He says right here in Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money, not he who has money, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eats them. When you have more, guess what? You have more mouths to feed. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Solomon says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will never let him sleep. If you make right now more money than you've ever made, my question is, how differently do you sleep now? Are you more satisfied? What would you tell a younger version of you if you looked in the mirror? (laughs) Because what Solomon is doing in the book of Ecclesiastes is he's looking in the mirror at a younger version of himself, a more idealistic version of himself. And with just five or six years left before he dies, he's giving wisdom. And the sad part is, he's not going to have a life to apply it. But you do. You have the life that Solomon didn't have to learn the wisdom that he picked up. And I would just tell you today worship God. And enjoy your stuff. He has given you life, and he's given you time to enjoy his gifts. So enjoy his gifts. But while you're enjoying them, remember where they came from. Remember why he gave them to you. And put your hope in him, not the gift. Psalm is not done, though. He continues in chapter 6. It says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. Now skip down a couple of verses. In verse 6 he continues, Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place, All the toil is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage is a wise man over the fool? Or what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. And for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Solomon's last lesson, I think that he should have told the Queen of Sheba, is that lasting joy comes from God and not wealth. And notice the word I put in there, lasting joy. I'm not saying that that wealth can't offer you some sort of temporary pleasure. When I was a kid, people told me, "Hey, if you have money, it will never make you happy." It's not exactly true. (laughs) It's just, and we do that at church. We tell these like little half lies, you know, to kids um, that aren't actually helpful, and then later they have to make people laugh in church when you talk about it. But he's talking about lasting joy. And he's using an illustration. He says, I I had everything. He had everything except for one thing, the joy to enjoy it. Kids, the worst moment your parents have is on Christmas Eve when they're wrapping your presents and they see three little words on the bottom of your present. The words are, batteries not included. (laughs) And so you go like searching all over your house for the battery box, praying you actually have that one, you know? And what Solomon is saying is that joy is the battery of life. And you can kill yourself accruing wealth. You can kill yourself accruing experiences. You can burn years of your life toiling. But if there is no joy, What does Solomon say? You'd be worse off being poor. In another place, he basically says, you'd be worse off not even being born. See, we don't have a money problem in America. We have a joy problem. We have things that our ancestors dreamed of. They made TV shows about. The Tricorder on Star Trek... My iPhone's better than that. I don't have the flying cars still from the Jetsons, but I'm I'm waiting one day. (laughs) But where's the joy? We've gotten more and more, and it's meant less and less. And what Solomon says to us is he says, All the toil of man for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. That word appetite in in Hebrew is very similar to the Greek word for soul. It's the same word that Jesus used when he said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, we all nod our heads at the idea that contentment doesn't come from wealth, it comes from God. But where have you been looking for contentment? And what would it mean if you began to want what you already had? What if instead of wanting what you didn't have, what if you wanted what you had? As a way to prepare you to get something else. Because if you don't want and enjoy what you already have, you will never want or enjoy what you get in the future. This is what Jesus says, To him who has been faithful with little, I can entrust with much there some of you the worst thing god could do is get you a promotion or a raise or a bonus it would be like giving you poison for your soul and the the thing i want to remind us of is is solomon is not saying that we want the wrong things he's saying we want the right things but we're looking in the wrong place c.s lewis said this in his book mere christianity he said creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger, while well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling desires to swim, while well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, while well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. God is using your desires to show you the disillusionment of this world to meet them so that you will seek Him. I said this in the first week in the series. Meaning in life is received from God. It's not ripped from life. And maybe the the emptiness you feel, maybe the frustration that you feel, maybe the disappointment you feel is something that God didn't cause, but He is most certainly using to draw you to Him. And maybe part of today is you being laid bare and God exposing you so that he can save you. Last week, I preached what felt like a rather dark sermon and a 13-year-old boy walked down the aisle and gave his life to Jesus Christ. Because even at 13, he realized that he's not going to find in the horizontal world under the sun something that's going to fulfill his soul. Solomon is here in his 60s, half a decade away from death, saying, I experienced everything and it didn't fulfill my soul. And so now I'm looking to the vertical, where I couldn't find in the horizontal. Are you going to wait until the end of your life to figure out the meaning of life? Whether you're 13 or you're 65 or somewhere in between, today is a day that you could realize that the contentment and fulfillment your soul wants only comes from God. It doesn't come from stuff. On the back of your handout are some next steps that I've put there for you, and they vary according to your struggle. If you're struggling with greed, I want to encourage you, each night this week when you sit down to dinner, to thank God for at least one thing he's put in your life. Kids, what if when you had dinner with your family this week, every night before you ate, you all had to share one thing you're thankful for? Because when you're thankful for what you have, you have less time and energy to focus on what you don't have. So if you're struggling with greed, I'd encourage you to practice gratitude. Number two, if you're struggling with hope, I would encourage you to end each day by spending your time focusing on the size of God, not the size of your challenges. So many of us are so fixated and gazing on the size of our problems that we only ever give a quick glance to God. And is it no wonder that your challenges seem larger than God? Solomon didn't write a lot of, but there's a couple of psalms that he wrote. And so I'd encourage you, you could read a psalm each night. And write down what you see in terms of the character of God. And when you focus more on the character of God than than you do your problems, it's interesting how things begin to reshuffle themselves in terms of their size. In life, the thing that you focus on becomes the biggest thing. It's only big because of your focus. And then number three, if you're struggling with trust... What if you began each day by praying the Lord's Prayer, asking Him to meet your daily needs and confessing your dependence on Him? You know, my kids go to our weekday preschool Cornerstone and they've learned all sorts of prayers due to their great teachers. But one of the first prayers I learned was the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Give us this day our daily bread. Not, Scott, go out and make daily bread. Not go out, Scott, and get more bread, but recognize the only reason I can go out is because of what God has given me. Even the stuff I'm enjoying, the basic bread. And for those of you who are gluten free, it's a metaphor, (laughs) it's a daily dependence. And only when you're dependent on him does that build a sense of contentment that says it doesn't come from my stuff. It comes as a gift from God. Because when you build that kind of heart, you become the kind of person that God can trust with more. And maybe God has been waiting to trust you with more until you do the soul work first. Until you attend to your heart. Because if you get more and you're still singing never enough, nothing's going to change. Let's pray.